My name is Stephen. I am glad that you guys are here today. Uh, we're talking about genetically generous, and we're continuing that series today. Now, genetically generous is essentially one two-hour message. So we could have just done this all in one week and just kept you here until two in the afternoon, but we decided to break it up into four parts, four smaller messages. Now, I would say that's true of all of the series that we do, that it's one topic that we're talking about for several weeks, but this really is a continuation of what we talked about last week, which is a continuation of what we talked about the week before. And in week one, if you can't remember, because it was a long time ago, what we discussed was how we are made in the image of God, and what that means is because our God is generous, that you are also generous. And then we talked about the science and the research and the studies behind that, that show that the same physical, chemical reaction occurs in your brain when you kiss someone, when you see good friends, when you eat good food, and when you give. It's the same exact physical reaction. You are biologically hardwired for generosity, the same way you're hardwired for sleeping and eating. And then we continued that conversation last week with Dan saying, well, if we're all generous, why do some of us give to the GoFundMe? Why do some of us stop at McDonald's and buy a value meal for the man or woman panhandling? Why do we give to our church every week? Why, if we are all generous, do we express that differently? And Dan talked about the different motivations. We all have different generosity profiles, things that make us want to give. And I want to recap those because I felt like they were so good, very interesting stuff. Uh, Some of you are cause movers, and you're motivated by making a difference about the causes that you are passionate about. Others of you are budget keepers. You are wise with your money, and giving is part of your wisdom. Faith stretchers are people who see giving as a way to grow closer to God. They feel like when they give, they are closer to God. There are disciplined doers. They see giving and generosity as a matter of obedience. Hey, this is what God tells me to do, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it joyfully. There are community growers, people who love being a part of a community and know that being a part of a community makes a difference. And then legacy builders, and that's the group that I fall into. We want our resources to make a difference long after we're dead. Okay, so I can be blunt and just say that because I am one of them. Um, I want what I do in this life to matter long after I'm gone. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, if you're not a legacy builder, you don't care about your legacy. Certainly, at different points in your life, you'll have different motivations. But you can go to mygenprofile.org, I believe is the website, and find out what your primary motivator is. And so it's really cool. It takes about a minute to answer eight questions, and you'll find out what motivates you. Now, throughout this whole series, and what we've been talking about is that we are wired. We are genetically generous. And so in the same way that we need to sleep and eat, we need to be generous. And the same way that you get irritable when you don't sleep or we get hangry when we don't eat is the same thing. The same concepts happen when we aren't generous. Yes, we go through life and we might be stressed out or anxiety might be just consuming us or depression or darkness or sorrow and unhappiness. But sometimes those wounds are self-inflicted. And it's because of how we treat ourselves. We don't sleep, we don't eat, we don't exercise, we don't drink, we're not generous. Sometimes we make our problems worse by the things that we do or we don't do. So to summarize the first half of the series, two weeks, one hour worth of messages, we are all genetically generous. 
and we all have different motivations for being generous. See, I could have saved you guys so much time if you would have just skipped the first two weeks and come today. But that is where we start today, is that we've been spending a lot of time talking about you, and you are your favorite subject to talk about. You don't have to raise your hand. It's true of everybody. Um, But today we're talking about the second half of this one long message on being genetically generous. And I want to talk about all of us together now. I want to transition from we've been talking about you and what you have is significant. Absolutely. You are significant and what you bring to the table is significant, but, and there is a but, it is incomplete. What you bring to this community, what you bring to the city of Madison, what you bring to your workplace and your school, what you bring to your family is absolutely significant, but alone it is incomplete. And I want to talk today um, about Acts 4. And so if you want to follow along with the Blue Bibles or your Bible app on your phone, feel free to. But we're going to study from Acts. And Acts is great because Acts is a history of the early church. And so what's happened is Jesus has lived his life. He has died. He's rose again. And now he has ascended into heaven. And now what we have are the very first Christians starting the very first churches. And I think that it's important for us to talk about this particular time period because A lot of us are new believers because this is a new church. Because like them, they didn't have a lot of resources and we don't have a lot of resources. But this group goes from 12 men to 120 people to 2 million people after 100 years to 2.2 billion people in 2019. How did a few new believers with a few new churches with no money do that? And that's why we need to talk about it today. And so I want to read from verse 32 of this fourth chapter. And what Luke tells us, he says, All the believers were united in heart and mind. And they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. All right, so I want to spend some ample time today breaking down this very short Bible verse again. I think that a lot of times when we speed read through the Bible, we read something like this, and we say, check, done, got it. You probably didn't share this one on your Instagram post, um, because why would you, right? But I want to break it down, because I believe that there are three concepts or three convictions that come out of this one passage. And the first concept that we see the early church has is that God owns it all. Again, we're talking about early believers, new churches, under-resourced. How did they go from 12 to 100 to a million to a billion? Well, the first thing that they did was that they understood that God owns it all. And now all of you, like faithful churchgoers, you'll nod your head. Yeah, God owns it all. That's sweet. That's nice. I believe that. Sure. Right now you do. But then tomorrow morning... When your car breaks down on the way to work or when you slide off the road because of all the ice on the road and you're in the ditch and there's this unexpected expense, all of a sudden you're stressed out because it's your money, it's your car, and it's your unexpected expense and that's not how you wanted to spend your money, right? Or what about this Friday when you get your paycheck and it's a little less than you were expecting and then you remember a week and a half ago you got sent home early from work because it was slow, so now it's unexpected less income. Well, it's your money. You're stressed out about it because you don't have enough. And then you'll come back next Sunday as we finish this series, Genetically Generous, and you'll nod your hand and say, yeah, God owns it all. So, well, wait, rewind. If God owns it all, he doesn't just own the income, but he owns that unexpected expense on Monday. If God owns it all, he doesn't just own when you get a whole paycheck. He owns when you get a partial paycheck. 
And so you don't need to walk around stressing out about your life. How am I going to pay this? How am I going to do that? If we really believe that God owns it all, we share in the stress with God. We say, well, I don't know what God is going to do. I don't know how God is going to do it, but God owns it all. He owns my paycheck. He owns the car bill. He owns it all from beginning to end. Some of you are Harry Potter fans. Raise your hand. It's okay. This is a safe place to say that you watch Harry Potter. Okay, J.K. Rowling, before she wrote Harry Potter, I'm going to tell you just a little bit about her, was a single mom, and she was struggling. How much was she struggling? Well, she was writing the first manuscripts to Harry Potter on napkins at cafes and restaurants. She couldn't even afford paper to write on, so she was going to these cafes and writing on the napkins, okay? That is where Harry Potter was born. Now, some of you have dreams, and that's where they're at right now. You're stealing napkins at the cafe to write down your dreams because you ain't got no money, okay? But that's where she starts in, well, Harry Potter, a few books later, a few movies later, J.K. Rowling is the first author in the world's history to become a billionaire, from stealing napkins to probably not, if she could buy whatever she wants at this point, right? But if you were to Google her right now, she is not on Forbes' list of billionaires. She was, but she's not anymore. And it's not because she made bad investments. It's not because the Harry Potter franchise lost her money. None of those things at all. Actually, what you'll come to find is that Rowling gave away a ton of money. Millions to nonprofit organizations that helped illiteracy, that helped single parents, and that helped orphans. She gave the money away. It wasn't wild living or stupid investments. It's that she gave it away. And when asked about it, she says, you have a moral responsibility when you have been given far more than you need to do two things, wise things with it, and give intelligently. J.K. Rowling, and we can leave this quote up here for a second because I want to talk about it. Okay, notice who she doesn't cite. She doesn't say, because I'm a Christian and because God wants me to be generous, I am generous. No, no, no. She has a different moral compass than I think a lot of us in the room, certainly not all of us in the room, but a lot of us have. We say, well, God wants me to be generous, so I'm going to be generous. She just says, you have a moral responsibility. She feels it deep inside of her. Why? She is genetically generous, even though I don't know anything about her faith or her religious views at all. But deep down, what she is citing shows deep down inside of me, I just know that it's right. It is my responsibility that I've been given more than I need to do two things, to be intelligent and to be wise and to give it. Okay, now there are no billionaires in here that I know of. Did anything change in the last seven days? Next series is about liars. <laughs> Kidding. So there are no billionaires in here, but we would believe that our God is generous, and as such, God has given us everything we need, right? I don't know if any of us would stand up and say, you know what, no, God hasn't provided for me. He has not been good to me. Certainly, we might feel that way. Certainly, you might feel that way now. But we believe that God is generous and he has given us more, far more than we need. The early church had less than us. The richest person in the early church had far less than the poorest person in this room. We've talked about that in other series before. I won't unpack it right now. But the poorest person in the room is wealthier than the richest person in that early church. They weren't affluent, but they were convicted. God owns it all. 
And as such, even though it was small, it was significant. And when they brought it all together, it was completely significant. Remember this idea. We all have something significant to bring, but alone, individually, it's incomplete. And when we bring it together, something awesome can happen. So God owns it all. That's the first conviction that I believe that we need to have. The second conviction we need to have is that God wants generosity for you, not from you. We say that a lot. I want to break it down a lot right now, okay? When we read in this 432 passage, it says they shared everything they had. They shared everything. This wasn't about two people giving and eight people receiving. It wasn't even about five people giving and five people receiving. It was about everybody giving and everybody receiving. And that is how the community of God is supposed to be. We all give a little and we all take a little. And certainly there are times in your life where you are financially independent. You have enough money to buy everything you want or enough money to buy everything you need and you are happy. But there are other times in life, as seasons of life go, and some of you know this, where you will be financially dependent. You will rely on somebody else to help you pay that utility bill. You will need somebody's help to help you make rent this month. And that's okay because in the community of God, we all give a little and we all take a little. Okay? We have to be, we have to live and be willing to share. I want you to do something with me here. Can you guys hold out your hands for a second, all of you? Um, I'm not going to have you raise them or anything. Now clench your fists as tight as you can. You can do both of them. If you guys, I, I'm holding a microphone, so I can't. Uh, but clench them as tight as you can, okay? And hold it here. Don't loosen your grip. Just tight, okay? This is what it's like when our lives feel out of control. When we feel like God wants something from me. When I feel like somebody wants something from me. When I got that unexpected expense or when my income isn't as much as I wanted it to be. And what do we do? We grip tighter. So grip tighter. We hold on. And what we hold on to is fear and selfishness and anger. And we hold on to pride. And we hold on to stress. This is what we do. Can you guys start to feel little bit of pain, right, in your hand right now. It's kind of like your hand's getting sore. We've only been doing this for 30 seconds, guys. Come on, okay? Now, I want you to turn to the person sitting by you or across the aisle from you and show them your hands. Show them. Yeah, Jeff's got it. What is this? We look at each other with our fists, and this is a fighting position. And this is what we go around in life like. Clenching onto our problems, stressed out, upset, me against you, me against the world, us against us. But we talked week one, what? It's healthy to give. And as you open up your hand, what happens? Ah, oh, feels so good. Relief. We only did it for a minute. But in just this one little demonstration, this is the difference. Your soul goes from being clenched up. And when we begin to live open-handedly, all of a sudden we feel contentment. We feel joy, satisfaction, and peace. Completely different. Now I want you, with your open hands, to look at the person next to you now. What is this? This is a posture of worship. During the songs, the band, we put our arms out in prayer and praise to God. And we say, God, move in me and move through me. Live in the praises. Live in my worship. 
This is a completely different way to live. When we believe that God wants something for us, we have our hands open and we have contentment and peace about it. And we are in a posture of worship. But when we walk around saying, no, no, this is mine. We're stressed out. We're angry. We want to fight with everybody. And it is a choice. You can't do both. God is not a bill collector. He is not going to call you five times tomorrow to pay your past due bill. Okay, that's what somebody who wants something from you does. They call you, text you, message you, stop by your house and ask, when are you going to pay this? God doesn't do that. He's not going to chase you down this Wednesday to figure out why you didn't give the church today. But here's the thing. God is speaking to you right now through this community and through this series. And God is saying, I want generosity for you. I want you to experience true life, new life, deeper life, life like you have never experienced it before. God wants generosity for you, not from you. And the third and final conviction that this early community had was that God doesn't just want to accomplish something in you. He wants to accomplish something through you. Yes, God wants to do an amazing work in you. That was what the whole first half of this series was about. It was all about you and what motivates you and how you're wired for generosity. And that is awesome. But God wants to do something through you. Well, if we read just a few verses down in Acts 4, Verses 34 through 35, we read, There were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. Remember, Acts is a history of the early church. Luke isn't saying the early church had this vision that there would be no needy people amongst them. No, Luke writes, past tense, this church had no needy people amongst them. Past tense, it happened. Check. And I think that for a lot of us, we say, well, hold on a second. Is that possible for us today? Could there be a neighborhood, this neighborhood? Could it exist with nobody having a need? Well, it seems too far-fetched. That can't happen. No way. But that's exactly what Luke is saying is what happened when this early church understood these convictions and concepts. It is hard to imagine a world in which no kids go hungry. It's hard to imagine a world in which there isn't poverty holding families down. It's hard to imagine a world in which there's no loneliness that drives people to take their own lives. It's hard to imagine a world where violence doesn't take someone else's life. It's hard to imagine a world where people aren't spiritually deprived and far from God. We might even say it's impossible. But what we read is that it happened. And when I began this message and talking today, I said, what about these early believers in these first churches that had no money? What made them go from 12 to 100 to a million to a billion? Well, I don't think it had to do with lasers or fog or traditions or liturgy. But how long do you think it took for people to say, hey, you know what? In that community, people don't have needs. There are no hungry kids. There are no impoverished families. There aren't people who are lonely. There is no violence. People are just happy. It doesn't matter what you believe about this, this, or that, and the finer things of theology, or how did you vote in the last election. If there's nobody needy in your community, that will attract people a lot more than anything else we could do. Right? 
That is how they grew. It's how we can grow and reach more people. Lives will be changed, okay? It's not about filling up a gym. It's about lives being changed. It's about communities being transformed. And it's about, most importantly, eternities being altered because a group of people, you and me, who each have something significant to contribute, but incomplete by itself, come together and we become significantly complete together. We are all hardwired for generosity because God is generous. Now, I don't want to cast vision for 2019 right now. I want to talk about history of our church, and it's a short history, and I only want to talk about last year in 2018. But this is important, and so I hope that you guys get excited with me. In 2018, we baptized more people in one year than we've ever baptized before in our five years here. We also had our two most attended church services ever. And week to week, we were almost 100% larger compared to the year before. Because of the generosity, the significant generosity and yet incomplete generosity of our budget keepers and disciplined doers, we were able to do ministries that connected more people with God and each other than ever before in our history. And in that same time period in 2018, we had a community breakfast on Easter in which 70-ish neighbors came out and ate breakfast with us. We had a Thanksgiving dinner here in which over 100 neighbors came out and we served dinner with them. We bought gifts for over 20 families last Christmas, and we helped put on the Wexford Connection event, which is a community development event across the street for the fourth year in a row. And we were able to do that because of the significant, yet incomplete, generosity of our cause movers and community growers. More people gathered together in 2018 than any other year prior because of your giving. And finally, this is cool for a legacy builder like me. Our church supported church planters, pastors, and churches in four different continents around the world last year. We gave over $5,000 in financial aid to those partners, and we are working toward a second site in downtown Madison. Because of the significant and yet limited generosity of our faith stretchers and legacy builders, there are more opportunities in 2019 than there was in 2017 for people to find a life-giving relationship with Jesus. And you might say, well, Stephen, it sounds like you're backhanded complimenting all of us. You're saying we have significant generosity but incomplete. And it is, because if you can imagine, what happens if all we did last year was just baptize more people than the year before? Or what if last year all we did was buy families some Christmas presents at Christmas? Or if all we did was give $5,000 in aid to people working and doing ministry around the world? Is that significant? Absolutely. But is it complete? Not when you know everything else I've told you about. When we all come together, when the doers and the growers and the movers and the keepers and the stretchers and the builders, when we all come together, every single one of us, we make the world a completely different place when we are done with it. And that is absolutely impactful. There is not one person in here who is insignificant. Everyone is significant, but you are incomplete. And without you participating in this community, we are incomplete. The community is the sum of all of its individuals. We are only as strong as our strongest person, and we are as weak as our weakest person. We line up somewhere in the middle. And all of us, I want to challenge us to all take a step in 2019, to take a step so that next year, 
We can look back at 2019 and say, hey, you know 2018 was great? We actually made the world a better place to live in in 2020 because of what we did this year. I want to conclude with two words that I'm going to talk about next week, okay? Please come back. Finishing the series, and next week, I'm really excited about what we get to talk about. But the first word today is commitment. And that word is for those of us who have made a commitment to give. Those of you who already give. Commitment. Let's stay strong in our commitment. Let's stay faithful in our commitment. Let's stay consistent in our commitment. If we do, then we have the opportunity this year to accomplish more than we've ever accomplished any other year before. If we give our best and if we stay committed to that, we will have even more to celebrate when we get together later this year. The second word is commencement. And that's for those of you who haven't taken that step yet. And I hope that you will. We talk about January and January 1st. Rarely do we look back at 2018 or the year before and say, oh, do you remember that resolution I made last year on January 1st? Still doing it. Still doing great. No. Oftentimes we do look forward at 2019 and we say, what are we going to do? And in the same way, I want to challenge you that you don't just see this year as the finish line to 2018, but that you see it as the starting line to 2019. And it's time to stop living close-handed. It's time to stop carrying all the stress and fear and anger and pride and selfishness and to quit fighting with everybody and having a fighting spirit and to open up your hand and say, yeah, God does own it all. He wants this for me. And through all of us, he will make a difference. Okay? Commencement. This could be the very first year in which you feel like your faith goes to a new place. And it might not have gone to a new place in a really long time. Okay? We'll talk about both of these more next week. Now, God isn't asking you to do this alone. Look at the people around you. He's called the community to do these things. There would be no legacy to build without our disciplined doers. There would be no community to be grown without people moving the cause. And there would be no reason to keep the budget if we're not stretching our faith alone. We are significant, but we are incomplete in our mission. But together, when we come together, we know that we could live in a Madison, in a city, and in a neighborhood with a church with people who don't have needs. It is not impossible. It's happened before. But what's it going to take? Every single person in this room right now saying, here's my significant piece, and it's incomplete alone. But when I bring it and I live open-handed with everyone else, that's the Madison that we will see Don't you want to be a part of something like that? 